Let's see here. I've got a clicker that I'm going to have to use if I'm going to advance these slides. When bad things happen to good people. I'm going to be in Job chapter 1 today. If you'd like to open your Bibles, it is just to the left side of the book of Psalms. Pretty easy to find. Psalms is a good book, good, a big book. Find Psalms, turn left, you'll find Job chapter 1. And I'd also ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and put a Bible ribbon there. We're going to end up there. Maybe your bulletin there tucked back in the book of Romans. But these are going to be our two focal passages. In fact, um, I debated how much of chapter 1 to read, and I decided to read it all. But we're going to focus on verse 13 and following. Now, sometimes I need audience participation. It's always welcome. If you want to say amen, that's like saying sick him to a dog to a Baptist preacher. You know, that's a, that can be a dangerous thing to do, but you're, you're, you're welcome to do that. But sometimes I need you to do this. You can use your left hand or your right hand. Can you practice with me? Do that. Very good. Now down, now up, now down. Okay, good. I need to know how many people use the New King James Version of the Bible here. I know that's favorite, favorite, okay? Thank you. How many of you use something else? Okay, thank you. I, I'm going to read this morning from uh, the New International Version, and there's actually two of those. This is the old one, the 1984 version. And so if you have a different version, I hope you'll just follow along. One of the things... I learned way back early in preaching is a good way to learn about a text is to read it from different translations to see how different people translated these ancient texts. So I'm going to be reading from uh, the New International Version. And uh, first off, before we get to our text, life is good. Did, did, did you go through the kitchen this morning and see that spread that was out there on the, on the counter? I deeply regretted the scrambled eggs and, and toast I had for breakfast this morning at my house. I should have waited here for that elk sausage and those pigs in a blanket and all that good food. Live life to its fullest. God gives us every good gift for us to enjoy, and we should savor every precious day. The older you get, the more true you know that that thing is. Every day is a gift. When we're upright and out of the ground, it's reason to be thankful, right? If you're on this side of the tombstone, life is good. Savor every day. Here's how the psalmist said it. In fact, you can probably quote this with me. This is the day. Why don't you quote this with me? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Life is good. But while life is good, sometimes it's hard. 
Sometimes bad things happen to good people. I think I learned this at about age 10. When, unbeknownst to me, the mother of one of my good friends, Brad Chastain, who lived about four houses down, got breast cancer and died. And I didn't even know she was sick until my mother told me Brad Chastain's mother had died. And I realized at that age in grade school, sometimes bad things happen to good people. I doubt if there's many people over the age of 8 or 12 or 15 who don't know that's true. And I have no easy answers. Because there aren't any easy answers. In every experience of true grief and pain, there is a place that is unique and yours alone. No one else understands. Even though they may tell you they know just how that you feel, they don't know because that place of pain is yours. And I would not presume to tell you that I understand where you are or you have been. That is yours and yours alone. But this book, it does offer us insights, and it offers us hope. You know, we use the word hope so casually. I hope I've got something good coming for lunch today. I, I, I hope, I don't know, I, I hope the weather cools off this evening or rain comes. When the Bible talks about hope, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope is a word of assurance and promise and promises that God keeps. There's hope in this book. Even when we've or even when we're experiencing that difficult time of true, true sorrow. So we come to the book of Job. This ancient anonymous story. There is so much here in this first chapter that I can only brush against. Good and evil. Satan asks God for his permission to harm Job, and God grants it. The assembly of the heavenly council, these angels, these sons of God, who come before him with Satan the accuser present. The nature and limitations of Satan. This play interplay between God's absolute authority and his permissive will. So many things. But I've chosen to focus on the experience of suffering. I'm here for a reason today. I'm here because your pastor is having surgery. 
I'd not presume to preach to Faber this morning. He doesn't need my help in sorting this stuff out. He prays. He reads the Bible. He can do that. I'd not presume, as I said, to understand where you are in your experiences today. But there's something here for all of us. And this starts with Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. You follow along as I read. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and five hundred donkeys, literally five hundred she-donkeys. It makes me wonder how many he-donkeys went along with those five hundred she-donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their sisters, their three sisters, to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to certain, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here's our focus. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. 
and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with ill-doing or with wrongdoing. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to this story with humility. It so reflects the questions, the pain that we've often suffered. Father, we'd ask through this passage and, Father, through others, that you'd help us gain peace and hope. We ask this in Christ's name. Job, greatest man in all of the Middle East. He was godly. I appreciate the way our text makes that so clear from the very outgo, uh, 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 get-go, out in uh, verse 1, blameless and upright. How he was not only blameless, but he sacrificed for his kids to make sure if they had sinned, their sins were atoned for. And he was rich. Now, so, you know, his greatest treasure was his children. Let there be no doubt about that. But 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 pair yoke, and 500 she-donkeys. I asked a friend recently, how much is a cow worth? being an ignorant city boy. And he said, 1200 bucks, give or take. This represents quite a bit of dough, don't you think? Greatest man in the East. The only people who could have compared to Job in terms of worth were Pharaoh's. He was that stinking rich. And in Job's day, in Jesus' day, the assumption was, if you are a righteous person, God will bless you with health and prosperity. That was the assumption. If something bad happened to you, it was because you did something wrong. That's basically how the book of Job unfolds. 
his friends come to him and says, God, you must have messed up somewhere. You, you've blown it. That's why all this calamity has come upon you. That was the basic assumption. God blesses the good with wealth. Job, the good men, bad things happen. Now remember, he's blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. He intercedes for his family. And the assumption of the time is God blesses good people. Then there's catastrophe in the fields. Servants, oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels. All gone. You know, part of the puzzle of this rhythm in this story to me is why the death of the servants is always listed last. You know, it's it's the donkeys are gone and so are the servants. The cattle are gone and so are the servants. Everything lost. But it's the calamity at home. Can you imagine if you had 10 kids and they were riding a bus home from a, I don't know, school project or a youth event, and there was an accident and all 10 of your kids were killed at the same time? But with all that this has happened, Job doesn't say God was wrong. This is incredible. The Lord gave me all of this. He can take it away. And I'll bless him. One of the commentaries I read this week made note of something that I had never thought of. You've read this story before, right? No one's, no one's hearing about Job for the first time. Correct? We know what's happened, and we know what's going to happen. We know how this is going to unfold. Job did not. At the end of chapter 1, when he prays and worships as he does, he knows nothing except sorrow. He is broken. And as a broken man, he still worships. God. He doesn't say God was wrong to let this happen. Why students of the Bible for centuries have identified three kinds of evil. There's natural evil. The world. Storms, earthquakes, illness. There's human evil, the flesh, willful sin, cruelty. Then there's satanic evil. Notice how Satan has used every tool at his disposal. Natural evil, the fire from heaven that fell and burned up the cattle, Willful, or excuse me, 
human evil, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans that came and carried off and the, the, the cattle and killed the servants. And then the hand of Satan himself behind it all. Satan's used every tool at his disposal. He is the one who came to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. We still battle these three evils. And once again, thoughtful Christian theologians have considered for centuries how we deal with this terrible problem. How can a good and loving and powerful God permit suffering to happen? So these explanations, that was the wrong button. These explanations, they're all good. But none of them's adequate. Free will. The choices we make sometimes determine what happens. The wages of sin are or is right. If we make bad choices, bad things can happen. Right? Addictions. You decide to be unfaithful to your spouse. You habitually lie. It's going to catch up with you. At the same time, what about innocent children who suffer? What possible choices could they have made to lead to what might happen to them? Then there's what called, what's called the soul-building model. God strengthens us through suffering. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though some strange thing was happened to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his joy or his glory is revealed. Sometimes God permits suffering in our lives to strengthen our souls. But what about those who choose to become bitter instead of better? For whom these trials just make them hate God? Then life transformation. Life is hard. So be a hero. As Brother Armstrong read for us earlier, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can overcome life's trials. But as Rav Tavian says in the musical Fiddler on the Roof, God, I know that we Jewish people are your chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else for a while? Couldn't someone else be the hero? Last of all is the eschatological. Eschatological. Heaven. In life, there will always be suffering we can't explain. 
heaven is worth it all. Paul said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Heaven's going to make it better. That's fine for later. But what about now? So, I've lined out for you evil. I've put up four paper tigers, answers to why evil happens, all of which are good. I mean, they're rock solid. They're, they're in the Bible. None of which are adequate. Where does Steve Johnson go? What's my best perception? It's here. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been a called, who have been called according to his purpose. This is where I rest. Could we read this together? We're going to use our good, strong, call the kids to supper voice, okay? Not our whisper in the, th in the theater voice. We're going to use our good, call the kids to supper. Let's read together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God work. This text does not say God causes all things. I know that God is sovereign and that he has an overarching permissive will that's beyond my understanding. I, I can't tell you why God let Satan do what he did to Job. I'm sorry. I just, I just don't have a brain big enough to figure that out. It's there. It's there. I just can't grasp it. But not all things are caused by God. Jeremiah the prophet records that Israel was sacrificing their sons and daughters to the foreign deity of Molech. And he, speaking for God, says that God never commanded, nor did it enter his mind that they should do such a detestable thing. It's beyond the pale. God couldn't even imagine that they would do this. God doesn't cause all things. If someone shoots a member of your family and murders them, God did not cause that. God doesn't cause all things. Has, has God given cancer to our friend and your pastor? I'm sorry. I just don't buy that. That's just, that's just not in my understanding how God works. 
And certainly, this doesn't say all things are good. Once again, is murder good? Or is gang violence good? Is addiction good? Here's what this text does say. God can use anything when we love him. He can take the worst that the world dishes out and use it for our good. Anything. Any tragedy. Things that we can't understand. Anything that, that, as I mentioned earlier, we may not understand till we get to heaven. God can take the worst the world dishes out. And can, he can use it for us good. Is it fun? Not for me. I don't know that the Christian life was ever promised to be, quote-unquote, fun. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes we reap the consequences of those bad choices. But even when we have done something that is our fault, and we repent, God can still use it. He can use those consequences for our good. That is my deep, deep conviction. So, I don't have absolute answers. But I know the perfect person. I know the one who knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. I know the one who, even when we were sinners, God sent his son to die for us. I know the one who has offered us forgiveness of everything we've done wrong so that we can have fellowship like this church enjoys here so that we can be forgiven and, and given eternal life and the hope of heaven the precious gift of his Holy Spirit in our hearts I know the perfect person in all of life's ups and downs we, we can celebrate life and enjoy it to the fullest. And we can trust him when we just don't understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't have all the answers today. Do. You love us. You gave your son for us. 
Father, you gave us the treasure of the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we can walk with you. You have richly blessed us. I imagine this morning in this good group of people, there are some hurting hearts, some deep, deep burdens, grief, fear, bitterness, sadness. Let the healing balm of your Holy Spirit Come and speak the words of comfort that we need and bless. We ask this in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.